Father, let's pray together. Father, we love you so much, and um, what a good ministry to our heart this morning, um, to lift you up above all else. Uh, Lord, it's so easy, uh, Monday to Saturday, to let that not be the priority of our hearts, but uh, we trust you to lead us. Prone to wonder, we feel it, we know it, we've experienced it, but we're, we're so grateful that you're faithful, that you're patient, that you're kind. Uh, Lord, this morning as we turn to a time to open up your word, I pray that you'd speak powerfully. Um, reminded in your word this morning that um, you gave your life for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. 2 Corinthians 5, that we are new creations in Christ, but not only new creations, not only we experience that new life, but you've asked us and called us and commissioned us to be ambassadors with you, working with you, partnering with you, and you making your appeal through us to persuade all to put their faith in you. And um, Lord, I pray for that this morning. I pray for power through your spirit to uh, make an appeal. Work through me, Lord. Um, I'm prone to wonder. I personally experience the weakness of my flesh, the weakness of my life. But Lord, I know that you are strong and I know that your grace is sufficient. And I pray that it would uh, be communicated well this morning. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Let me kind of get situated here this morning. Well, welcome. Uh, if, if you don't know who I am, my name is Andrew McClure. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you were here last week, maybe your first week with us, um, I wasn't here. I was upstairs with our um, third and fourth graders. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I'm actually deeply encouraged by our kids and the questions that they're asking, the things that they're learning. Um, so you got a high, high bar set for you by our third and fourth graders last week. See if you can pay attention like they did. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, turn there too. Um, as you turn there, though, let me kind of give a couple of housekeeping things. Um, as we get more and more into the month of September, there's going to be a lot going on in the life of our church. Um, we're going to have things like baptism classes and membership classes. We're going to have some community events, just an opportunity for us to get to know one another. Um, there's there's going to be a lot going on. Uh, announcements for youth, if you have kids 6th grade to 12th, those will be coming out soon. Um, but I say all that to say it's just going to be too much for us to communicate every Sunday from, from the pulpit. So there's three ways that you can stay involved or at least up to date on what's going on in the life of our church that I'd love to just make you aware of. Okay? The first is um, our website, cbcrichmondhill.com. It's not flashy, but it does have information on it. So we have an events tab. We have a ministries tab. Get, just get familiar with that. That's, that's a way that we can kind of push these events to make sure you're up to date. Um, the second is social media. I am no longer our social media manager. Praise God, okay? But we do have a Facebook. We have an Instagram. You can follow that way. And then finally, you can subscribe to our newsletter. I, I promise we're not going to blast you with, with spam and all that. But every couple of weeks, we plan to send out a newsletter um, just to kind of update you on these events, make sure you have those dates in your, in your pocket and you're aware of. Um, and to do that, you just go to our website, homepage of cbcrichmondhill.com, scroll to the bottom, and you can subscribe that way. So again, just a couple housekeeping things, just don't want to overwhelm you over the next couple Sundays with a plethora of announcements. Um, but Acts chapter 2, verse 22, that's where we're going to look. And let me kind of set us up this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever been so convinced of something that it was impossible to persuade you otherwise. Like, like so convinced, 100% locked in. We're actually going to see in our scripture today this phrase, know for certain. Have you known for certain some, something so much that it was impossible to be convinced otherwise? All right, let me give you a, a quick example in my life. I don't know, long time ago, I almost lost my best man based on a, a situation like this. And I think in the English language, we have some idioms to refer to this posture. We, we say it's a hill worth dying on. 
You ever heard that idiom? We have a hill worth dying on, meaning I'm so convinced of something, my feet are solid, you're not pushing me off, it's a hill that I've chosen to die on. And this particular hill almost cost me the best man in my wedding. All right, to be a McClure, that's my last name, there's three things that have to be true of you. First, you know, genetics and, and last name, by far the least important. Second, you have to be an avid Georgia Bulldog fan, okay? Thank you for the amens. I won't say too much about it, but if you're from the Northwest, welcome, okay, to the Southeast. The third thing that I have to say, though, is you have to be a, a classic rock connoisseur, okay? 1970s, specifically, Zeppelin, local legend Greg Allman, you know, things like this. That's what I grew up listening to. Anytime in the truck with my dad, anytime at home with my dad, we're listening to 1970s classic rock. Flash forward to the University of Georgia campus. I'm in the car with my, my best man in our wedding, and um, the song The Joker comes on. If anybody knows what that is, you know, some people call me Space Cowboy. I'm not going to sing. I'm not on the worship team. That's the song. But for whatever reason, as soon as that song came on, I knew Tom Petty had written that song. Like, I knew. Like, I was convinced that that was what happened. So I look at my best man, and I say, man, isn't Tom Petty great? And he goes, that's not Tom Petty. Anybody know who it is? Steve Miller Band. That's Steve Miller Band. Everybody knows that's the Steve Miller Band. For whatever reason, I was convinced, y'all, that this was Tom Petty. 20 minutes arguing in the Ford Ranger, arguing. I mean, I was, I was dying on the wrong hill, but we were arguing about this, and you're thinking, why would you not just, you know, pull out Siri, solve it real quick? Because we didn't have data, you know, on our Motorola Razors. You remember what I'm talking about? The Motorola Razors. So 20 minutes later, we get home, Look it up. Sure enough, y'all, I'm wrong. I mean, totally wrong. I was embarrassed. I was mad. I was humiliated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of idioms that we could use to describe that. Humble pie, uh, egg on the face. Um, but for whatever reason, as I'm preparing for this passage, Acts chapter 22, just that idiom of, of the wrong hill to die on or choosing a hill to die on is kind of what popped into my mind. And I don't intend to introduce that by, you know, Jesus juking us or making some hard spiritual turn, um, but, but I do want to be clear. There's a verse in here. Look at, look at verse 36. It says, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Know for certain. What we see in this passage is know that there is a hill worth dying on, that there is something that we can and should know for certain so we wouldn't be persuaded off of it. And, and y'all, as we kind of finish out this introduction, I, I just want to be forthright and, and really unapologetic this morning in telling you that, that what this passage is, is highly evangelistic. That if you do not have a personal faith in Christ, if you've never trusted in him through your Savior, if you've never responded to the call of his grace, this passage is for you. And I'm going to preach it that way. I'm going to preach it just as the text saying, now, if you're new to us, you, you don't know who we are as a church, every Sunday won't be this. We're just going to preach the text as it's in the Bible, okay? But that's what's here. At the end of this passage, we're going to see 3,000 people respond to faith in Christ. That is overwhelming, okay? You know why it's overwhelming? Because we launched on August 7th with like 250 adults, like 1,000 kids. That was overwhelming. Could you imagine what would happen if 3,000 people responded in one day? But that's what happened. They responded by putting their faith in Christ. So unapologetically this morning, that's I'm going to preach this passage. Okay? But if you're a Christian, you've been following Jesus for a while, you can't check out. Don't, don't go to sleep on me. Because if you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 1, where we are called to be witnesses. Right? We are commissioned to be witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What we have in this passage is a good example of how to do that. Peter is going to clearly communicate the gospel. So if you want to learn how to be a witness, pay attention to how Peter does this because it will equip us to do that. So evangelistic and um, uh, equipping for us this morning. So let's read our passage together, 
Uh, it's pretty long. We're going to get verse 22 all the way to verse 41. So uh, hopefully I'll click correctly and have it on the screen for you. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that it may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence, with confidence, there's that hill to die on, about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in this tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that this yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's that summary verse, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, hey, here's a hill to die on, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's a hill worth dying on. That's what we're going to be looking at, is a hill worth dying on. Just like those gathered 2,000 years ago, I want you to be able to leave today knowing for certain that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Come. And if you're sitting there thinking, man, that took about two minutes for you to read, Andrew. Why do you have to preach for 40 minutes every Sunday? Okay. Just want to bring your attention back to verse 40. And with many other words, okay, he bore witness. So we have a summary here. So just hang in there. Don't tell me I should go quicker. I'm trying. All right, so three things I'm going to give us today in our outline, just some, just some points that I'm going to draw our attention to that would hopefully aid us in standing on this hill. Okay. The first is the introduction. Second is the incision. The third is the instruction. We're going to see Peter introduce us to this Jesus. He's going to provide an incision of the heart, and then it's going to introduce, uh, I mean, instruct us on what to do about that, okay? So verse 20, uh, 22, let's start there. Little context, these spectators, y'all, they were, they were captivated. Remember what Coleman preached on last week. They had gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of, I mean, the, the Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls on these 120. They're filled with the Spirit. I mean, the, the, the Spirit looked like tongues of fire. And then began speaking in other languages the praises of God. Y'all, that's a scene. These thousands of people had gathered because they're captivated by what they're experiencing in this moment. But they're not just captivated. They begin, they begin to question, what's going on here? In verse 12, they say, what does this mean? And Coleman walked you back last week through the Old Testament and really point out what this means. It's the inauguration of a new kingdom. 
that what they're experiencing is what was promised to be the beginning of the last days. And if you look at verse 21, it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's happening is the beginning of this moment, that the kingdom of God is no longer just for Jews alone, but for all people. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So they're captivated. They're wondering what's going on, and Peter explains to them the significance of Pentecost, but then he gives them this sermon beginning in verse 22. And the first thing he does is introduce us to Jesus. He talks a lot about Jesus. Specifically, he introduces us to Jesus as the Christ. Okay, subpoint number one, type A people, follow along with me, okay? Subpoint number one, Jesus as the Christ. Peter's introducing us to Jesus as the Christ. Now, what is the Christ? If you're like me, grew up in Sunday school, you know. I thought it was Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ, son of Mary and Joseph Christ. It makes a lot of sense. That's what we say, Jesus Christ. You may know a little bit more than me when I was in Sunday school. It's not, right? Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It's a title that means chosen one anointed one, savior. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Messiah, the long-awaited for Christ. That's what it means. And the people gathered that day in Jerusalem, y'all, they would, have, they would have known what Christ means. In fact, they were awaiting and expecting the Christ to come. We saw that in Acts 1-6, right? When the apostles were with Jesus right before he ascends and they go, hey, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Because that's what the Christ would do. The Christ was expected to come and to establish the kingdom. They just expected it to be a different kingdom than he established. So they were awaiting the Christ. They just misunderstood about what, what he was going to do. Right? They wanted a nationalistic, political, mono-ethnic kingdom. They expected the Christ to come with a sword on his side, riding into Jerusalem on a white horse. Right? We've talked about this as we've already progressed through the book of Acts. They knew the Christ would come in. In fact, they knew even from the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve that a seed or a descendant would come in Genesis chapter 3 that would come and one day destroy the work of Satan and sin. We see all throughout the Psalms of David, in fact, Peter quotes two here, but we see all throughout the Psalms, we see all throughout the Old Testament scriptures that they were expecting a Christ to come to destroy sin. They just thought it would be to restore a nationalistic kingdom. They didn't expect him to come from Nazareth. Right? That's not where a king would come. If you remember Nathaniel, Jesus' disciple, when he called him under the fig tree, they said, we found the Christ. He's from Nazareth. They said, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Well, you, he can't come from Nazareth. They didn't expect that the Christ would come from Nazareth. That's what Peter does. He introduces them to Jesus as the Christ by saying, hey, it's the Jesus of Nazareth. This man who was from Nazareth, he is actually the Christ. And there's three things that Peter gives us in this sermon that proves he's the Christ. The first is the signs that attest to him. Signs, miracle, wonders, they attest that he is the anointed one, right? I mean, remember all the healings that Christ did. I'm not going to go through all of them. Blind seeing, lepers being healed, the paralytic being lowered through the roof, and then one moment encountering Jesus and being healed. The one that really tugs my heart, the lady who was bent over for 18 years in pain, one touch from Jesus healed in a moment. Those signs, they point to the fact that he is anointed by God. He's the Savior. He is the anointed one. But what about his exorcisms? Destroying the power of Satan living within people. The young boy that kept having seizures and foaming at the mouth, one touch from Jesus set free from the power of Satan. When they go to the cemetery, right? Could you imagine walking up on this experience and the man who had legion is in there? cutting himself naked out of his mind. They try to change him, chain him to the tombstones, but he's so strong and powerful, he keeps ripping off of them. One moment with Jesus, the villagers come out and they see him clothed in his right mind. That's the power of the anointed one. He's attested to be the Christ by the power in his signs. 
the resurrection, right? Lazarus being raised after four days, the daughter of Jairus being raised with one touch of Jesus. All of these things point to the fact that Jesus is the anointed one. And we could go on. Coleman quoted it, the the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000, walking on water, calming storms. All of those things just point to the fact that Jesus was the Christ. But he was also attested to be the Christ by his crucifixion. Sorry about that. In verse 23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Old Testament scripture pointed to the fact that the Christ would actually suffer that the Savior they should be expecting would be a suffering servant. They just didn't have it in their paradigm. That's not what they were expecting. They misunderstood what the Christ would be like. And there's not a scripture, I think, that depicts Christ as the suffering servant as clearly as Isaiah 53. What's crazy about Isaiah is it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years this prophecy was written that the Christ, the Savior, the anointed one, would bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, yet we would esteem him stricken smitten by God, afflicted, that he would be pierced for our sins, for our transgression. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we would be healed. Peter is making the argument, y'all, Jesus is the Christ. Remember, the Old Testament pointed to the fact that he would suffer. You crucified him. That was attested by scripture. He's the Christ. But he'd also be attested by his resurrection. Because the Old Testament would not just prove that he would be a suffering servant. They proved that he would not stay dead. He would one day rise again. That's what Peter says in verse 24. God raised him up. This Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Christ because God raised him up. And then he goes on to reference a couple of, of things in the Old Testament. The first is Psalm 16. Look with me in verse 25. David quotes Psalm 16. Where David, I mean, Peter quotes Psalm 16, where David says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that he may not be shaken. He says, therefore my heart was glad, my flesh will also dwell in hope. And then he gives us this verse, verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not let the Holy One see corruption. In fact, he goes on to say, you will know the paths of life, that you will forever be in the presence of God. The Christ was prophesied to be raised from the dead that his soul would not be abandoned to Hades or the land of the dead. He would be resurrected. And in verse 29, he he continues to prove that point. Again, he's introducing them. This Jesus is the Christ. He's been raised from the dead. He says, brothers, I may say with confidence that David has both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. You know what you find if you go to the tomb of David? David. But he makes the point, you know what you find when you go to the tomb of Jesus? Nothing. He's resurrected. The one that David is talking about is not himself. He's talking because he's a prophet about Jesus. He says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath that he'd set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. So he's concluding, verse 36, know for certain this Jesus, the one you crucified, the one from Nazareth, he is the Christ. But Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't just introduce them to Jesus as the Christ. He introduces them to Jesus as Lord. Okay? He's not just Savior. He's Lord. And Peter makes it clear in verse 23, I mean 33. Being therefore exalted, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out that this you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The argument that Peter is making here is that by his ascension and being exalted at the right hand of God, he is Lord. 
not just Christ. He is Lord. Because at the right hand, that's a position of honor, a position of prestige, a, a position of supremacy. The right hand is where judgment flows forth. So he who is sitting at the right hand is the one who is Lord, Lord of lords. And again, he uses Scripture to make this, this point. Psalm 110 this time. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but David, being a prophet, foresaw that the Christ would. says, The Lord said to my Lord, God the Father looks to God the Son and says, Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool. This exaltation, this position of honor at the right hand is proof that this Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. Paul would go on in Philippians chapter 2 to say that one day all tongues will confess this. Every knee will bow to the fact that Jesus is Lord. So he's making his point, he's making his argument by introducing these people, all these thousands that have come to hear from Peter. He's making the point that Jesus is Christ and he is Lord. So that's 22 through 36. And what's amazing about that sermon is, y'all, it hit its mark. It, it landed. It hit its target. Because what we see is the introduction to Jesus led to an incision of the heart. Look with me in verse 30, uh, 37. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, that's the verse 36, that's the introduction to Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That Greek word is found nowhere else in Scripture. It's only here. It's this depiction of deep, violent agitation. There is a deep pain that is being experienced by this audience. They are cut to the heart. Why? Right? Why are they so pained by this? Why, why did it cut them so deeply? We've heard this message. Right? You've heard about Jesus being Christ and Lord. Why, why is it affecting them so deeply? That's, that's really the point of what we need to hear this morning, and, and it's for three reasons. The first is because they had tempted to regulate Jesus. For three years, Jesus moved among them. He preached among them. He did signs and wonders among them. But instead of acknowledging him as Christ, instead of following him as Lord, they regulated him. Here's the point. They had a lot of ideas about who they wanted the Christ to be. They had a lot of desires about who they wanted the Christ to be. They tried to regulate him. They wanted him to be a prophet. He's just, he's just a prophet, just like a prophet of old. Just like Jeremiah, just like Isaiah. He's just going to call us back to pure religion. He's just a prophet. That's what they regulated him as. Others wanted him to be that political Messiah that we've talked about, ad nauseum, a savior that would deliver them from the Roman Empire. That's what they wanted the Christ to be. Others just wrote him off as a, as a lunatic, a sorcerer, someone that could cast out demons because he possessed the, the prince of demons within him, right? They regulated him. They didn't accept him for who he said that he was. Instead, they tried to regulate him. What's awesome about Jesus' fortitude is that he would not be regulated. He is who he says he is. He was who he said he was. He forgave people's sins. Oh, that's something only God could do. He wouldn't be regulated to just some moral teacher, some political messiah. He forgave people's sins. He let people worship him, something only worthy of God himself. And then even made the statement that if you don't worship me, creation will. The trees will clap their hands. The rocks will cry out. He claimed to be the only way to salvation. He is the way. People got offended by that and regulated him. You know, I, I can't imagine people just thinking, Jesus, like, we like you a lot. <laughs> like, you're a, you're a great guy. You're a great teacher. We appreciate all you do for us. Raising my buddy, that was awesome. You know, keep doing stuff like that. Feeding our bellies by, by that loaf and that fish trick. Keep doing stuff like that. We like that type of Jesus. But you got to be quiet about this Christ and Lord stuff. 
They regulated him, but he would not be regulated. And you know what they did? When they couldn't regulate him, they rejected him. When you can't regulate him, they rejected him. When Jesus says, I give you eternal life, you just have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, they walked away from him, rejected him. When he set people free from the power of Satan, like that, like that man who had legions, they came out and they found him clothed and in his right mind, they told him, get out of our region. They rejected him. When he taught in his hometown, his brothers and his sisters rejected him. My favorite one in Mark 4, when he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to read Isaiah 61, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Then he rolls it back up, and he sits down and says, today this was fulfilled in your hearing. This is me. I have the Spirit of the Lord upon me. Jesus is saying, I am the Christ. They almost killed him on the spot. They drove him out of the synagogue. They rejected him. They didn't like what he claimed to be. When you can't regulate him, you, you reject him. It's just natural. But they're cut to the heart for, for another reason. It gets a little bit deeper. It's because ultimately they were responsible for his death. I mean, Peter says it directly, right? Twice in this sermon. He says, this Jesus, you crucified. You crucified him by giving him over to these lawless men. And then verse 36, he says it again. This Jesus, you crucified. You're not off the hook. Not anybody in his audience that day could look at him and say, we didn't do that. That was the Romans. Because Peter would have said, listen, I was there. I saw you crying out for Barabbas instead of Jesus. I saw you screaming, crucify him. You're on the hook. You're responsible for his death. So they're cut to the heart because they're becoming aware of their guilt, of how they had regulated him, how they had rejected him, and ultimately how they were responsible for him. Y'all think about how terrible of an act this was. They had been waiting as a people for this Messiah, for this Christ, longing for it, expecting him. And instead of following him and accepting him for who he says he is, they crucified him. And then they, and then they hear Peter say something like in verse 35, that, that this Lord, this Jesus, is now sitting at the right hand until the Father makes all his enemies a footstool. Instead of being the chosen people of God, following the Messiah, they rejected him and killed him, and now they're accounted as his enemies. Think about that, setting in on them. They're becoming aware of their guilt. And Peter helped them see whom, he whom they have pierced, and they're mourning for him, as the Zechariah the prophet says. So what does that mean for us, though? Right, We're 2,000 years removed from that. Like None of us were there unless, no, no, that's impossible. None of you were there. So how do you, how do you declare, hey, I, how does this apply to me? What does this mean for me? This is where it gets really personal. The truth of the matter is, as much as they regulated him, we do the same. Right? Be honest with yourself. Really assess yourself. Who do you want Jesus to be? Is it who he claims to be? I mean, I think we all want a good moral teacher, someone that can give us some good values. I mean, a good meme every now and then. When you're suffering, somebody that can give you some scripture to make you feel a little bit better about our situation. I want some good values. I'm a, I'm a father of four. That's right. I said four, eight, six, four, and two. It's exhausting perpetually in our home. I want to raise my kids right. I need some good values. I need some moral lessons. I want Jesus to be a good moral teacher. But y'all, they need to be honest. I think we want a good political Messiah too, don't we? Someone that we can vote for, use, stand on to make our country great again, whatever it looks like. We want him to be a way to God. We don't like this whole claim that he's the only way. It's pretty exclusive, isn't it? We get offended by that. We try to regulate him. But y'all, just as 2,000 years ago, he is who he says he is. He was who he says he was. He can't be regulated. C.S. Lewis says this. Um, he talks about this trilemma, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He didn't leave it up to anything else. Let's read this together. 
This is C.S. Lewis writing about this. He says, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. And Jesus claimed to be Lord. Peter told him he's Lord. So they're cut to the heart because they were aware of their guilt in regulating him. But, it, but it's worse, right? We, we don't just regulate him, we reject him. I mean, how many of us have been cut to the heart before? Becoming aware, convicted of our sins, and, and maybe even getting to the point where we go, yeah, Jesus, you're Lord. I want to follow you. I want you to be Lord of my life. But then we realize for him to be Lord, that means I can't be anymore, right? You can't have two Lords. You can't ter- serve two masters. Either he is or he isn't. And we realize that just as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a call to follow Christ is a call to what? To die. It's a call to deny yourself. And to die yourself, that means I got to deny some things I like. There's some things in my life that I don't want him to take. I enjoy these things. So we start to realize that and we go, that's too much. So you're rejecting. Or we don't like the claims, as I've mentioned before, that he's the only way to God, so we get offended and we reject him. Or maybe you like what you hear from Jesus, but you've seen so much hypocrisy in the life of a Christian or in the church in general, so you reject Jesus by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But, but it gets worse for us still, okay? They regulated him. They rejected him. We've regulated him. We've rejected him. We are also responsible for his death. And you say, well, how, how is that? How can that possibly be? I wasn't there. Because the Bible's really clear on this. I'm going to give you about four references, four scripture quotes. I, I won't give you the references, but 2 Corinthians 5 is one that says, it, it was for our sin that he was made to be sin. Peter tells us in First Peter, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree. Isaiah 53 says he was wounded for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. It wasn't just a sin to crucify him. It was all of our sin that led him to be crucified. Okay? Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, that we deserve death. For our sin, yours and I, we deserve death. If it weren't for our sins, there would be no need for him to die. You following me? So he died for our sins. It was our sins that put him there. We have to come to grips with that. And hopefully, like these in Peter's audience in verse 37, we begin to cry out, what do we do? Like, how do we fix this? How do we undo what we've done? And that's where Peter leads us to the third point, the instruction. This, this is where the irony of the cross comes, come, comes full circle, comes into view for us. The irony of the cross. Okay, hang in there with me. Because this message, y'all, it is foolishness, as Paul would tell us in Corinthians. To be saved from their regulation, their rejection, and their responsibility, they have to come to the cross. The same cross, just 53 days prior, they had crucified Hamal. You see the irony there? They killed him where their most heinous act was on display. And to be forgiven for that, you have to come to the same cross on which we crucified him. God used their most heinous crime as the means of our salvation. Let me say it in a few different ways just to really highlight this irony. When we come to the cross, we see two things. We see that our sin put him there, and we see that there he rescues us from our sin. When we come to the cross, we see that we did it to him, and when we look at the cross, we see that he did it for us. You see the irony of this cross this is where the paradox, and this is like we're getting into deep waters here, okay, of God's sovereign 
predestined will comes into play with man's undeniable responsibility. Okay, let me put it this way. God's role in salvation and our responsibility in this moment. We see this in this passage. God's sovereign plan and man's responsibility. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? God's sovereign plan. Before the ages began, he chose that salvation would play out this way. He delivered Jesus up to be saved. I mean, to be crucified for us. Ephesians 1 says that before the ages began, he chose you and I to be holy and blameless before him. How? How could you ever be holy and blameless before God? You have to transfer your sin. You have to get rid of your sin. So he paid the price for your sin so that you could stand holy and blameless. But that was chosen before the ages began. Does that blow your mind? That he chose to deal with our sins according to the predestined and sovereign plan of God, just as this verse says. But at the same time, we see in this scripture and all throughout other scriptures that we are responsible for his death. That even though it was God's sovereign plan, we had responsibility. You crucified. You crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. This is the mystery of the divine will. It was God's plan, yet you can't avoid your responsibility. You're accountable for this. God was working in the events of your responsibility to bring about his eternal purposes. That blow your mind at the wisdom of God. In the tragedy of the cross, you are responsible, that you were responsible for. We find the triumph of salvation that he is responsible for. It's a beautiful irony. I'm going to say it one more way. The cross we crucified him on has become the cross that cleanses us from that sin. So what do we do? What do we do with this guilt? You come to the cross. John Stott wrote it this way. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, yet God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Amen. The beauty of the cross, the beauty of God's grace. So what do we do? We come to the cross. But we can't do that in our own strength. We can't do that in our own power. Acts 2, verse 39. For this promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of salvation is for you, it's for your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We can't come in our own strength. He calls us. The Bible teaches that even when we were dead in our sins, he makes us alive together with Christ. You know what dead people can do? Nothing. A dead person can't do anything. If you are dead in your sins, you cannot come to him. He comes to you, makes you alive together so that you can approach him. We are called to him. By grace, we have been saved. The reason he calls is because it points to the fact he did it all by himself. We can't come and boast before that. He did it for us, and that's God's sovereign, predestined plan for salvation. He calls you. But at the same time, Scripture teaches we have responsibility. These things walk hand in hand in Scripture. God calls, we respond. We have to answer. So how do we do that? Verse 37, it cut to the heart. Brothers, what should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Two responses that he gives out clearly, repent and be baptized. Now, what does it mean by repentance? By definition, repentance is, is to change one's mind. It's, it's to totally turn one way towards another. It's a total change. It's, it's more than a remorse. It's more than a sorrow for our sin. It's not something that we conjure up some feeling. It is a turning that happens. 
Now, Scripture, I don't have time to go into this, has a plethora of references of how even repentance is a gift. Okay? It's, it's part of God's call to us. But we respond by turning. And y'all, we have to do that personally. We cannot do that on the coattails of anyone else. We have to do that personally. We can't say, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, my, my parents were Christian. I was raised in the church. I, I, none of that suffices. It's our own responsibility, our own personal responsibility to repent, to turn, to turn from our sin and consequently turn to Christ. Okay, That's repentance. It's a turning. It's letting go of the things that I hold on to, releasing those, and then embracing the cross for all that it has. That's repentance. It's turning. Then he gives them another one that says, be baptized. Now, this can be a little dicey, and I'm going I'm to take my time in explaining this. Read with me verse 38. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's tricky. Didn't I just share how we, we, we can't save ourselves? But ultimately, it looks like this passage is teaching us, if you're just baptized, you're good to go. Jump into the waters, get immersed, get dunked, you're clean, you're good to go. That's almost what we would be led to believe to read. But the translation really fails us, and other scriptures would, would you know, better suffice here. But when we look at the Greek language, we actually uh, translate that word for as on the basis of. It's on the basis of. So let me, let me restate this using on the basis of. Repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. That's the point. The point is, because he died for the forgiveness of your sins, respond by being baptized. Because you have been saved due to his grace on the cross, and that has resulted in the forgiveness of your sins, respond to that in the association of baptism. Does that make sense? We are saved. We're, we're washed by his blood poured out for us on the cross, and we respond to that in baptism. Baptism doesn't save us. It's not a work. We can't earn our salvation. It, salvation is a gift. And then once we're saved, we're, we're baptized. So what is baptism? It's, it's a symbol. It's a symbol that when you go under that water in baptism through immersion, you're saying, I choose, to be I choose to die with Christ. That my old life, that life I'm turned away from, that's gone under and has died with Jesus. But then when you're raised up into new life, you're saying, because of Jesus' resurrection and his life for me, I've been raised up with him to new life. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore, you're a new creation. Baptism just publicly declares that. It's not a work. It's a symbol. So where does that lead us today? Let me, let me conclude with us. Peter had a, a captivated audience. They're all listening. They're all gathered because of these signs and his wonders. And then he introduces them to Jesus as both Christ and Lord. That, that message, that introduction leaves this incision on their heart where they become aware of that guilt of, of regulating and rejecting and ultimately responsible for his killing. And then they beg, what do we do? How do we fix this? Peter says, respond to the call of God in repentance and baptism. So look, look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. For 3,000 people that day, new life happened. The question is, is, has it for you? Have you responded to the call of God and the grace that he presented on the cross? Is that you? If not, if that's something you're wrestling with, or maybe today for the first time saying, yeah, that is me, or maybe recently that has been you, can I just say as a pastor of this church, we want to hear from you. Like, I want to I know that. We want to know that because we don't want you to begin this new life alone. Because what we're going to preach about next week is they begin to devote themselves to the community. 
to the church. We're going to read about that next week. We don't want you to do that alone. We don't want you to figure out how to walk this new life alone. That's where the church comes in to disciple. We want to hear from you. Not, not to make you a number, not, not to publicly profess anything other than just be with you in this new life that Christ has provided for you. So we want to hear that for you. The second thing is maybe you are a believer, you've just never been baptized. I want to challenge you to be baptized. It is a, it's a command of Jesus to repent and to be baptized, to be baptized. Now, there's, there's a lot of reasons that we come up with that just aren't valid to be baptized. Well, is that really necessary? Is that, do I have to to be saved? No. We already made that clear. You don't have to be baptized to be saved, but your salvation says you declared Jesus to be Lord. What does that first walk with Jesus look like when you go, hey, I love that you're Lord, but you know that whole command to be baptized? Like, I'm good. It's you, it's you hanging on to that lordship of your own life instead of trusting him to be Lord. So I'd encourage you to obey. Obey your Lord. Be baptized. Publicly declare um, that you have new life in Christ. It's a step of obedience. So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to have any kind of altar call. Um, we're not going to do head bow, eyes closed, or anything like that. But we have put some connect cards under your chairs today just to make it a bit easier for you to access. If that's you, you, you're putting your faith in Christ, you're responding to God's call, or you're wanting to be baptized, would you fill one of those out for us today? You don't need to grab that right now. We, we're going to respond in song here in just a second. We're going we're gonna to give announcements. Anytime between now and the time you leave today, will you just fill out one of those Connect cards so that we can hear from you and connect with you? Um, we'd, we'd really love to do that and love for you to do that with us. So let me pray for us. Our, our team will come back up. We'll respond in song, um, and then I'll come back up and give us a few announcements. Father, thank you. Um, for your gracious, gracious word to us. Um, Lord, thank you for the irony of the cross, the paradox of the cross, um, that, that although our sins put you there, you went there for our sins. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of grace. Lord, I pray that um, for all of us, that we would respond to that uh, today, tomorrow, the next day, that we would live in light of the gospel, not trying to earn your love or your salvation or your acceptance, or your favor, but living in light of it and wanting to behave accordingly because of your grace is so great. Lord, I pray for the people here this morning. Thank you for gathering. Thank you for our volunteers. Thank you for these kids that are hearing this message, that are hearing the gospel. I pray that you would stir saving faith in them. Thank you for calling us. I pray that you would give us the courage to respond to that call. Lord, I pray for those who are wrestling with baptism, um, that they'd fill out a connect card, just connect, let us ask questions, answer some questions, walk through this together. But Lord, we'd be a church that doesn't just hear your word, but do your word. That we'd be doers of the word, knowing that that's a strong foundation we can build on. We pray all of this in your precious son, Jesus' name. Amen.